I'm Tannis McDonald. Welcome to Watershed Writers Podcast. In this episode, we begin by asking, when writing a memoir, at what point does your parent's story become your own? We talk with Madhur Anand about challenging the standard memoir form and how she decided to explore its limits. Discover with us as Madhur talks about living by rivers in the Punjab and in Southwestern Ontario. We talk about her recent Governor General's Award for her memoir, This Red Line Goes Straight to Your Heart. It's a book that explores the partition between India and Pakistan and the divisions within our families. We're glad to have you join us. This podcast series is for readers and for writers, for people interested in how writing works and why it's vital to where and how we live. We record in the Grand River Watershed region, the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We feature interviews with local novelists, poets, playwrights, and essayists, and offer a showcase for a community of nationally known writers, as well as writers who are just getting started. What are we connected by, by, by? You can find more about future podcast episodes on our website, watershedwriters.ca, on our Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast channels. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Watershed Writers, we are sharing our anticipation, excitement, and curiosity. We are listening local, talking global with you, our audience. This is our 10th and final episode of our first season, and we've already started planning for the next season. In the last part of today's episode, I welcome our producer, Frances Roberts Riley, to the microphone. And she and I will talk about what you can expect to hear from Watershed Writers in season two. That's coming up. Right now, it is my pleasure to introduce this episode's guest, Madhur Anand, who is fresh from winning the 2020 Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction for her memoir, This Red Line Goes Straight to Your Heart. Here's what the jury had to say about Madhur's book an innovative, moving account of three generations of a South Asian Canadian family as they negotiate time, history, memory, and loss. This book of constant fleeting juxtapositions is a confluence of the intimate and the objective that blends science, personal narrative, and fictional elements to push the nonfiction form into bold new territory. In this red line goes straight to your heart, Madhur Anand challenges the ways we think about memoir and family history. Madhur Anand was born in Thunder Bay and has lived in Sudbury and now in Guelph, where she is a professor in the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guelph and serves as the inaugural director for the Guelph Institute for Environmental Research. Her first book, a book of poetry, a new index for predicting catastrophes was shortlisted for the Trillium Book Award in 2016. I first met Madur in 2017 at a fundraiser organized by poet Laurie D. Graham and Lauren Weinberg at the late great much lamented Kitchener art space and store Open Sesame. 
We kept in touch and then the way of things in the poetry community, Madur hosted the very last in-person reading I gave before the pandemic shutdown at the bookshelf in Guelph. So when her memoir came out, I ordered it right away. And I was glad I did. Jane Urquhart calls it, quote, an emotional and intellectual tour de force. And that is right on the money. An experimental memoir about the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947, immigration and generational storytelling, this red line goes straight to your heart, is told through the lenses of biology, history, and poetry. It's a memoir that defies form and convention. In her review in Canadian Notes and Queries, Andrea Callanan writes, what is new about this book is Anand's experiment with the memoir form and her explorations of its limits. At what point does one's parent's story become one's own? This is an excellent question and one that I'm eager to talk about with Madur, along with the question of mixing the arts and the sciences and within the writing process, mixing poetry with nonfiction. So without further ado, Madur Anand, Welcome to Watershed Writers. Welcome, Madhur Anand, to Watershed Writers. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, uh, to see and hear you. And I should get straight to the congratulations on your big win of 10 days ago when you won a Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction for your memoir. This red line goes straight to your heart. How has it been this week of celebrating that kind of win, but of course, celebrating it in a different way than, than we might usually do so? Yes, thank you so much. I mean, it, it's wonderful, wonderful to get that news. It's been a, a quiet celebration. Yeah, pretty muted one. I'm waiting for the right time to celebrate. I'm gonna save, save it for for when we can do it properly. And also it's been a, bit, a little bit hard to really have it sink in, I think as well. For me, I don't write to win awards. Of course, you know about awards and it, you know it's nice to receive them, but I, I feel that I'm a bit of a realist in that sense and that I know how rare those uh, awards are and how improbable it is to win them. There's a huge role of chance in them. And so I think it's just a very practical thing to not write uh, towards that. And I think because of that, winning the award, uh, you know, the thing that drives you to, uh, uh, you to write, I guess I'm trying to say that I, I would have written this book anyway. So I'm realizing that the award doesn't really change the book at all. It doesn't change a word in the book. It doesn't change what the book is. Yeah, I've already done all the work that went into the <laughs> book and I would have done that anyway. So yeah, it's weird. I feel like a little bit, I'm not gonna say indifferent because that seems so cold, but it doesn't change the work. And I think it's yet to be seen how it changes me or my approach to writing, but I don't think I'm going to be writing any differently. I, I can't imagine that, but it's too soon to say. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, because it's still fresh news. So congratulations again. Madur, you live near the Speed River, which is one of the rivers that feeds into the Grand River watershed, which is of course 
uh, the name of our uh, radio documentary and podcast. Since I'm also someone who came to the area as an adult, right? I was not born and raised here. And I'm always curious about how people land in the Southwestern Ontario region. Like what brings them here? Uh, what kind of journey were they on before they got here? So can you say a bit about how you came here and the ways that living here has changed you or influenced you? What brought me here was a job. I'm a professor at the University of Guelph. And as any, anybody who knows about academia knows that we don't really get to choose where we go. We go where the jobs are. Oh, but it's a little more complicated than that. I relocated. I, I lived in Sudbury, Ontario before Guelph. Very different watershed. <laughs> and I, I, I married somebody. I actually got engaged to somebody who was in Southern Ontario. And to make a long story short, uh, I started to look for a position in Southern Ontario to relocate for, for those reasons. So it was the job and also marrying my current partner but I was born in Thunder Bay. And I also wanted to say that at one point, um, it's interesting that you bring up the watershed and the rivers and that this is the subject of this um, podcast because at one point I was invited to do a project with some artists here in Guelph on rivers. Rivers are like mentioned a lot in my book. And so I actually went through my book and just searched for all of the rivers that are named and there are 13 different rivers that appear in my book including the speed river uh because some of it is set here in guelph but there's rivers all the way from my mother's birthplace in pakistan in her small village it's the door river and then like just river the, the, the ganga is of course really significant and i there's a lot of indian references to mythology in some parts so yeah, there's 13 rivers in total that are mentioned in my book. Lucky 13. Um, Mador, could you read again from uh, this red line goes straight to your heart? Sure, I'll read a little bit from Everyone Has It. In 1947, a line is drawn across the state of Punjab. The man who draws it imagines an organic undulating curve like a river. What cannot be seen is how it changes course every year. If a river cuts the left bank, it deposits silt on the right and vice versa. Everything in nature at first seems straightforward, but closer inspection reveals something sinuous and ultimately crooked. Punjab means five rivers. Adding a line like a river by hand on a map does not seem unreasonable. His little arrows indicating human displacement are impeccable. By that point in history, scientists have discovered infrared radiation, galactic redshifts, and continental drift. In The Origin of the Species, Darwin has already written, it is interesting to contemplate a tangled bank clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing on the bushes, with various insects flitting about and with worms crawling through the damp earth, and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other and dependent upon each other in so complex a manner, have all been produced by laws acting around us. There is already a model of the atom, the theory of the Big Bang and penicillin, 
but maps are still a very poor resolution. What cannot be seen are fenceless farmers' fields, entwined bodies of lovers, birds nesting. Superconductivity has been discovered, but there is still no known mechanism to trigger the amplification of electrical currents without the input of a human hand, the flicking of the switch. Thanks. I, it's great to hear that piece, uh, especially thinking about the, the divisions and the arbitrariness of divisions. Excellent. Thank you. I want to begin by talking a little bit about uh, something that was said about your first book, where um, the great Canadian nature poet Don Mackay said about your first book, which is a book of poetry called A New Index for Predicting Catastrophes. Um, Mackay said, these poems collapse the ancient dichotomy between art and science. Now, I just want to sort of stir that up a bit because I'm not sure I disagree entirely with Mackay, but I'm also not sure I would call this an ancient dichotomy. In fact, I, I think if we go back far enough, it's actually an ancient unity, right? So that they, uh, art and science were thought of um, very much as the same kinds of things. And I know this is something that not only permeates uh, the first book, but also the memoir as well. In fact, you know, in many ways in, in this book and your most recent one depend on the kinds of linkages and overlaps between what people think of as art and what people think of as science. Can you talk to us a little bit about how much that comes together for you when you're writing? I think the problem maybe in, in, in Don's uh, blurb <laughs> in retrospect might be that word ancient. You're right, because if you go far enough back, there was no distinction. There was no such thing as a scientist. That word only came into existence in the early 19th century, around then. Yeah, there are many examples. I think before that, you were a, a creator, a discoverer, a, a natural philosopher. philosopher. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Because of that, I suppose, or or, or vice versa, uh, is that people just did many things, right? There's so many examples from that time of people who were mathematicians and poets, were uh, biologists and painters and so on. So uh, and I mean, you know, we know that that still exists today. I, the issue that I think is, is that over time, as science started to uh, develop, new tools were developed, and it started to uh, specialize, you, you know, when you got into these things of expertise and professions and people closing the doors on certain things and, and just this professionalization of it then made it less and less accessible to people. And so in my experience of being a, a university professor in science, I generally find that in, in society, there's a, there's a perception that science is something that only a certain sector of people do. And generally speaking, we need somebody to translate science for us. It's not something we can directly experience. And, you know, I think the same thing could actually, you know, be said for, for art as well. Like, you know, if you tell someone you're a poet, who's not a poet or who doesn't read poetry you know they have no idea what you mean and yet they have some idea of what they think a poet is and it's usually very wrong right it's something really horrible so i think there's this sort of 
oddly, like there's this sort of expertise and then, but then it also then becomes, if you're, if you're distant enough from it in your everyday life, there's a mystery that surrounds these things like, you know, the science in the lab, the scientist in the lab, the scientist in the white coat, the scientist with the clipboard, and then the artist, you know, whatever, you know, (laughs) with a puffy shirt. Uh, yeah, we're, you know, whatever it is, the poet with their beret, or I don't know, but, um, or, you know, wearing all black, or I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there are these stereotypes, right? And I think generally speaking, you know, yeah, we, we just don't have a, an understanding of these things. I do think there is now, I wouldn't necessarily call it a dichotomy, because I think fundamentally, fundamentally, our understanding of nature with a capital N is something that where there are commonalities between art and science in terms of ways of knowing and the ways of understanding things but because of various things institutions things are divided right because science mostly happens within institutions and art often does but not always and then then that has gone to various extremes right so science and art have then also developed their own languages their own cultures their own ways of communicating and so on so if you look at like scientific papers and the way they're written they're written for other scientists it's almost codified at this point so there's just so many structures that comes down to language in place now that really separates the two cultures I'll just come to very quickly to the situation in my head because it's very different, right? Because I do both and I do uh, attempt to bring both views together somehow and to focus them jointly in a kind of unifying way. I, I don't have an explanation for why I am the way I am, but because I've experienced this ability to bring these two together, and there's other people who do this, of course, I know for a fact personally that that dichotomy doesn't exist. I think this is a perfect segue to start talking about this red line go straight to your heart because this is a book that is in many ways haunted by the idea of division, mm-hmm. of things being uh, split, designed to be split, arbitrary, forced, or admired, this kinds of divisions and it uh, organizes and haunts the book at the same time. Now, it's called a memoir in halves uh, for a number of reasons, but I think I wanna start with the structure. It's a flipped book. In one half of the book, it tells your parents' stories about their childhood and marriage and eventual immigration to Canada after the partition. And then the reader can flip the book and read about your story about growing up in Canada. This is absolutely using that idea that that red line that describes the 1947 division of India into a mostly Muslim Pakistan and mostly Hindu India. And it's also the central metaphor of the book. So divisions, red lines, flips, dual perspectives. It really is a book about what divisions mean and what they don't mean at the same time. <laughs> So tell me yes, about this. All of that. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about this idea of the flipped book. Why you wanted to go with not only having um, a, a multiple narrators from within uh, the same family, which is a challenge in itself, but also structuring the book in that way that it can actually be turned upside down and and read. 
So it wasn't uh, something I had uh, fully formed in my head, although being a complex systems ecologist, I have worked with many, many systems that that have bifurcations and, and non-linearities in them. So I work with a lot of ecological models that have those kind of weird flips and transitions and so on. So somehow that structure was already in my head. That's where I come from when I write uh, with all of these years of scientific reading of, of structure and form and shapes and geometries of nature, right? And of, of, of applying ecological models to nature. Dynamics, I have a very rich sense of dynamics because I study rich ecological systems. And so it was already in my head, but I didn't think to do it in a book. I think you, you try to capture that complexity and richness in the writing itself, right? You don't, you don't have many opportunities to use the, um, the physicality of the book to achieve anything. In this case, it was very organic, as it often is with these ecosystems. It's sort of a self-organized complexity. So what happened was it evolved into such a state. At first, I was only planning on writing stories of my parents. And what happened was I was interviewing them and making uh, voice memos of them speaking of various different things at different points of time in their life from their childhood to present. And, you know, my parents' voices are very, very distinct. My father and my mother, they're different from each other and they're different from anyone else I have ever heard. I mean, okay, maybe other people wouldn't hear it that way, but I hear it that way. And the reason for that maybe is because I, I listen really carefully and I hear the uniqueness in their voices. But, you know, it's a combination of things. So I was thinking about it, you know, why are my parents' voices so distinct? If you just sort of start superficially, my father, he was educated as a physicist. He has a slight Indian accent. I mean, that's so reductive of his voice, but just start with that. And then on my mother's side, she has a very, a much stronger accent. And that word accent is really interesting because... Um, it can mean many things and you can use that in writing too, of course, right? So I listen to their accents, to their tonality, to their pauses, to their uh, vocabulary. And, you know, all of this is because, of course, English is second language to, to both of them, right? Their, their mother tongues are Hindi and they also speak Urdu and Punjabi, right? So I was just listening to that very closely and listening to the stories at the same time. Maybe you can already, already imagine that there was already, already going to be such a texture to them. I realized it would be impossible to transform their stories in a way, let's say, writing them in the third person, which is how I initially positioned myself as the narrator of, of, of this book. But that was the wrong position. <laughs> that was the wrong position because their voices were too distinct I would have lost something. I just, I would have lost something by doing that. So I made the decision to, to write them both in the first person because of that. And then of course I was the narrator and then I was also myself. So that's how I solved that problem on their side. Now on my side, I didn't want to write stories of my own life <laughs> at all uh, initially. 
I really, it was not part of the initial project. As I started to write my parents' stories in the first person, many times I tricked myself. And I know that I tricked readers into thinking it was me. Like, it was so weird, Tannis, that I, you know, the first story that I wrote that got published, it was in Brick Magazine. And it was, you know, a story of my mother in her voice about her time as a child in India and the struggles that she had in, in, in trying to, you know, um, get an education and her father dying early and her mother being a widow and that being such a problem in that society at that time and all of the, you know, difficulties of being a, a young woman at that time. I sent it to a, a distant friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a few years to read it. And she wrote back and said, God, I had no idea that you know, you went through all of this. Okay. <laughs> you know, I know that not everybody would have that response, but I got so immersed in it that it did feel like my own voice is what I'm trying mm. to say. At that point, I started to feel a little bit more comfortable speaking about myself because I, I was already so much in their stories. Because initially when I tried to write stories of my own life, I was writing them in the third person. I was writing them with fictional names for myself, mm. even though they were all real. And, and, and I even published one as fiction, yeah. uh, even though it's all real and just changed my name, basically, or just changed like two words. Lo and behold, I had a bunch of stories all told in the first person. How was I going to organize them? It kind of made sense to put my parents together because they they sort of feed off one another. They don't, my parents never directly speak to one another or very rarely, like their stories don't speak to one another. Let's put it that way. So their voices alternate. And then there was going to be my stories. And I guess I could have done it in a linear fashion, right? Just part one, part two, and then done it that way. The, then I had the idea just to do the flip. And I mentioned it to my publisher and they loved the idea. My editor loved the idea. And then she checked with them and they said, yes, we can do this. And there's really something to, you know, when you're reading the book, having to actually turn the book over, you know, uh, our listeners won't be able to hear the sound of me turning the book over, but trust me, I'm doing it right now. And so you actually say, I have to manipulate this text in order to get at the rest of it. Right, yeah. which I think is a perfect metaphor for telling any family story, right? Yeah. It has to be manipulated in order to hear or to get at something else, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a physical representation of the transition from one generation to another, which is not linear. It's a non-linear change. You know, and this is something that comes up all the time when, when people talk about writing memoir. And I'm going to read a, a little definition from um, Sandra Pearl and Mimi Schwartz in Writing True and how they define memoir. Because for them, they think it's very important to distinguish memoir from autobiography. Here's a definition and we'll take it apart in a second. Stories about a slice of life are memoir as opposed to autobiography that tells the whole story of a life. Memoir relies heavily on memory a subjective tool, but essential for recapturing what's important in our past. To fill in the unremembered places, research can help, but the emphasis is still on our perceptions and feeling. I love that, to fill in the unremembered places. 
And of course, the question may be, if they're unremembered, how can you fill them in, right? Especially if you're thinking about what the capital T truth is, what authenticity is. And I will tell you that I never use the word authenticity in class, whether when I'm teaching a memoir or if I'm teaching a creative nonfiction, but it comes up every single time. The, the writers and the students bring it up. What about authenticity? How do we know this is real? How do we know it's true? And I know that this is something that occurred to you a few times as you were working uh, with this. Can you, can you say how you grapple with that kind of bugaboo of authenticity? But that's everything. I mean, I think that's everything in a writer's goal. It doesn't matter to me what it means in a sense. Like, as you say, there, you know, there is no one truth. <laughs> there is no truth. This is creative writing. But authenticity is more about writing something that you feel only you can write which is a weird idea, right? It's a bit of, it's, it's a very weird idea. I mean, this is the question you just have to keep asking and, and it's, it's, it's something that drives the writing. Does this feel true? And not true in accuracy or factual sense, although facts are, are important, were very important to me. I was very obsessed with getting a lot of factual truths and that is the scientist in me coming through. But obviously there's other truths that, you need it all to feel real, but it's also fabricated to some extent. There are points at which, and, and I've heard a lot of people say that it reads like a novel. And I did that deliberately in a way. It was a device that I used. You know, I use a lot of fictional device devices in, in writing this because that's what kept my interest, frankly. Like, And I had faith in that, that genre because I think... You know, I used the genre of fiction to tell nonfiction because I had faith in that genre to be able to transform these stories into something more universal. I think it's time that we heard a reading from This Red Line Goes Straight to Your Heart. Can you read a section for us? Apiti versus Jagpiti. The story goes more or less like this. A nobleman is out hunting with his hawk. The hawk gets him a crane, which he throws into a bag to bring back to his villa to have cooked for his dinner. The nobleman's cook has a friend who, unable to resist the smell of the cooking bird, begs the cook to give him one of the crane's legs to eat. When the nobleman sees the cooked crane with the missing leg on his plate, he asks the cook about it. The cook insists that the crane only had one leg to begin with. The cook tries to prove his point by taking the nobleman back to the river where the crane was hunted. They come upon a number of cranes in the water standing on one leg asleep. The cook says, see, they all only have one leg. The nobleman yells, shoo, and the cranes put down their second legs and fly away. The nobleman scolds the cook, but the cook then asks the nobleman, why did you not yell shoo at the dinner table earlier today? How do you know for sure that the cooked crane would not also reveal its second leg to you then? You see, you have wasted my time, sir. The nobleman accepts the cook's wit in exchange for his forgiveness. 
I have never heard of Giovanni Boccaccio, the man who wrote this story entitled A Witty Answer, which I read in my radiant reading book in Veradun when I was 16. It is full of words I did not know. Trust, refusal, obliged, wrath, impudence. The truth is three of five of these words I still do not know. The story is one of a hundred tales from a book called The Decameron set in Florence around 1350. It was the time of the Black Death, my daughter tells me. I have a vague idea where Italy is now because my daughter took me there when I was already an old woman. It was Venice and she made me taste red wine for the second time in my life and to listen to a classical concert of Mozart in a very old church. I listened, but I did not like it. I tried to hide that fact from my daughter, but she saw me asleep. I said it was from the wine, but she knew I had only had three sips. I still do not know what the Black Death is, but it sounds worse than partition. Excuse me, do you want to hear Apiti or Jagbiti? My version or the version written by others? Thanks so much. And that's uh, one of the big opening sections from This Red Line Goes Straight to Your Heart. Well, I love that story from the Decameron, right? About the <laughs> about the, the two legs on the cranes um, and the kind of way uh, that both science and legend come together there. And of course, my version or the version written by others in some ways gets straight at the heart of this book. Is it your mother speaking? Is it you speaking? Is it you speaking through your mother? <laughs> like what's happening, right? And in that particular passage, uh, you fooled me for a, a moment too, because when I heard I had never read the Decameron, <laughs> I thought, okay, fair enough. Lots of people haven't. And then of course, as it went on, I thought, this isn't her speaking. So this is something that I think is, is fascinating. Bill Rohrbach in The Art of Truth says that memoir seems to threaten everyone, at times even its own practitioners, right? And I, I think it's it's fascinating that the the use of voices here. And um, I, I love that you said, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's about both drawing readers in and tricking them at the same time. I'd like also to ask you to, to think about, um, I, I sent you this quote earlier from Waterloo uh, prose writer Mariam Pirbai, who wrote um, that Southern, uh, pardon me, South Asian diasporic writers consciously or implicitly deconstruct cultural labor labels when they're using uh, strategies of containment, which rarely correspond to the diverse, if not fractious reality of human relations. She's getting at this idea that uh, South Asian writers in particular have been working hard on deconstructing the novel, right? Or the expectations that we have from writing in order to get at the diverse reality of human relations. What do you think? True? Incidental? This is where, you know, I, I have no literary theory training uh, and I read by the seat of my pants type of thing, but I read very broadly and diversely. I don't know that I can really, you know, respond actually to what South Asian writers do or don't do. I do know that many of them, much of the diaspora do come, millions and millions and millions of people were affected by partition, uh, whether you're Hindu or Muslim or Sikh. 
that is still out there in the diaspora and it is not yet fully articulated and experimented with and investigated. You know, it's still not very well known broadly. And I think uh, in second generation immigrants, it's also something that is being quickly forgotten because a lot of the that history resides in oral history. And, you know, that is definitely something that I became more aware of as I took on this project. It wasn't the primary motivator for the project. It, it started as just being very personal, that I didn't want to lose my own parents' stories and my own parents' histories. But you very quickly realize that the personal is the universal. I realized that through this broader diaspora and this broader uh, legacy of partition. So, but it's fractured. It's definitely fractured. It's fractured because of very physical things and because of very artificial things and because of very violent things. That line, that, that red line that starts the book and that started out many, many trajectories of people's lives destroying things and destroying lives and, and horrific consequences. That line is a very, very crooked line physically. Like if you look at the map, it's really crooked and jagged and haphazard. Does that shape my work and probably the work of some diasporic writers from that region? I think yes. That Faulkner expression that the past isn't past, that history is not about the past, that the past itself is not even past. Uh, comes to mind here, right? That it's that the past reverberates throughout generations and has effects, right? And you're talking yeah. about that kind of shock and split, right? That it's- Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my book covers about eight decades of time. And that was a really interesting process for me. I mean, for my ecological models that I simulate, eight decades is not a very long period of time, 80 years. And I simulate those and generate those dynamics all the time. And I use, I'm used to looking at all those complex trajectories. But to do it for the human trajectory and across those particular geographies was, was quite a challenge for me. But it's amazing because as I started to do that, yes, I learned a lot of history and I documented a lot of history. It also suddenly became like I learned a lot writing this book, right? And that that's also part of the motivation of writing is is learning and discovery. But it was like I could suddenly see entire decades as though they were years. I started they started to sort of organize in my brain like I could I could see a decade suddenly, which was a which was a wild new feeling for me because I don't have any training in history and I'm not used to to studying things uh, like that. And yeah, nothing that I touched on the book in the present was independent of its past. Nothing at all, whether it's a person or a place or anything. Yeah. I mean, everything exists in relationship to each other, right? And that's, it's, that's really clear in this book. I mean, it's in many ways, it's a dense book. Like there's, you could read it as poetry. I don't mean dense in a, in a bad way at all. I just mean that there's, you were talking about the richness of systems and that really comes through in this particular, um, in this particular book. So thank you for writing this red line, get straight to your heart. Uh, Madur, I wanted to ask you about what it's like to move back and forth between genres. You talked 
a little bit earlier about being a poet, and this, of course, is a prose book that, uh, that has just come out as a memoir. Can you talk about the benefits or the challenges about moving back and forth between these two genres? I'm not an expert on this, I don't feel, because I only have one book of poetry published and one book of prose published. I don't, I don't have enough data to have a, you know, a sense of my process fully. While writing this red line goes straight to your heart, I was also writing poetry. I'm working on my second collection of poems. I will say that it was, it was quite distinct. They were quite separate activities, but in this case, it was because it's an entirely different subject and, and project. I do find that the poetry and prose uh, really conflict for some reason in my in my mind. They're like they're competing, like two, like a sibling rivalry or something. Like they're always fighting for my attention in my mind. That's how I currently feel about about it. I have a new pro a new idea for a prose project as well. And so it's pulling me, but then the poetry is always like, no, come back, come back here. So I find that they're, they're currently fighting with each other, but in the work itself, poetry definitely helps the prose. I don't know how much the prose is helping the poetry, um, <laughs> uh, except to perhaps provide that like necessary conflict that finally makes you do something, you know? So it just keeps me on on edge yes this this is very familiar to me <laughs> very familiar to me indeed <laughs> I, I love poetry as the as the little voice that keeps saying come back right <laughs> so uh, I this... love poetry I mean poetry <laughs> is my first and yeah. like will always be my love and I always worry about losing poetry I mean I don't actually I don't know that I actually know how to keep them alive in my life except that I I never want poetry to leave, and I, I also have no idea how I'm, you know, how I'm going to approach my next prose uh, project. But you know, I also take a kind of very practical, maybe scientific approach to things as well. In, in the sense that, like in in writing this book, for example, because I had no idea how to write prose, I just took it like bit by bit, and I wrote one story, and I worked really hard on it to make it the way I wanted it. And then I got it published. And so that made me think I could do it again. And then I wrote another story. And then once I had about, you know, six or seven of them, then I realized that I could do it, right? So I think that that's, that's something that I, you know, that's sort of the point I want, I, I want to get to for any new project, whether it's poetry or prose is like some sort of critical mass. And then you suddenly see how you can, you sort of see almost like that, that complex dynamical trajectory that uh, you stimulate, you sort of see how you can get to where you might want to go, yeah. or at least a range of this strange attractor that you'll, you'll settle on. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us and uh, to remind all our listeners that this red line goes straight to your heart, the Governor General's Literary Award winner. Published by Strange Light Books, a division of McClelland and Stewart, is available anywhere quality books are sold. I encourage you to support your local bookseller like Wordsworth Books in Waterloo or the Bookshelf in Guelph. This is not a paid announcement. It's just what I think people should do. So thank you, uh, Madur, and uh, it was lovely to see you and to talk to you about this memoir. 
Well, thank you so much, Tannis. This is the final episode of Watershed Riders for season one. And we thought we'd end this show with a little bit of a dialogue between myself and our producer, Francis Roberts Riley, about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and why we're doing it in the Grand River region. So welcome, Francis. Hello, everyone. Nice to be on this side of the microphone. You're usually pulling strings, the puppet master behind the scenes. That's so right. it's nice to have you uh, on mic. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about your idea for this podcast and this uh, radio documentary series? Because it really was your idea. Yes, well, it came out of my own life experience. You know, I, I've been a writer all my life, but I've been an employee. I've written politics, healthcare banks, I've done work for um, not-for-profits, you know, uh, all my working life has been writing in institutional voice, and I got good at it, and I got too good at it, but when I retired, I came to uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, and I was able to, um, instead of writing for my bread and butter, writing what I write, and for my own voice, and that's where the poet in me emerged, and where the memoirist in me emerged, and I've been happy about being able to publish two books and in a number of anthologies. But see, mine was hard won. It was hard won. I had to wait a long time to be able to come into my voice. And I really uh, know how much of a hard slog it is. And so my idea for this show was to get some really good in-depth conversations with emotional honesty, no holds barred, and let's hear from other writers about their passions, their struggles with their passions, and how they have had to be fearless in order to make it. So I'm no longer an employee, and since I've been in Kishinawaloo, I can actually call myself an artist. Excellent. And for myself, you came to uh, Kitchener-Waterloo as a retiree, and I came here for work when I was hired by uh, Wilfrid Laurier University in 2006. And from the questions that my students asked me about what it took to be a writer, I I wrote a, a book called Out of Line, Daring to Be an Artist Outside the Big City because the more my students talked about um, how they wanted to both um, live where they lived and live among their families and um, they didn't necessarily want to have that geographical cure of moving to the big city to do what they wanted to do and it made me start asking questions about why our literary institutions emphasize people who live in the large cities in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver what about the rest of us who are making art outside the big city so I started writing a lot about locality and local art and what it is to live in a region and make and have a literary life. And so I went to uh, the idea exchange on an invitation from Isabella Stefanescu to talk about these very things. And that's when I ran into you again, because you had been in a course of mine earlier. That's right. I'd taken your uh, lifelong learning at Laurier course in Canlit, 21st century Canlit, and honestly, I was just blown away. We read so many interesting writers like Jordan Abel and Laurie D. Graham's uh, Settler Education. They were just so uh, edgy and uh, really on topic for the Canada that is today. And I had actually gone back to university in my 40s and got my degree at 51. So I've been a late bloomer in many ways, but you you were just so creative in the way that you engaged the class. So we met, uh, actually I was around the dinner table at the uh, 
ex-camera lunch and they started talking about how do we do it in these small cities and I said you've got to read Tannis McDonald's book out of line <laughs> I said it's all in there and uh, so they did and, and that's how we uh, we connected back again and at the end of the talk I think I said something like do you want to make a radio program together <laughs> And, you know, of course, I got cold feet immediately, but eventually said yes, <laughs> and, uh, and then this came together. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the benefits of reading and listening locally and thinking globally. That's our tagline here on Watershed Writers. I think it's, it's interesting that sometimes people will dismiss uh, the writers or the artists that live in, their, uh, in the place that they live in order to um, go for those more metropolitan um, bestsellers, but what is it to read locally and to uh, think globally? Well, to read locally here is to understand that every one of the writers we've interviewed has had serious issues with their own production, with their own uh, creativity, and uh, with their own, um, their own place in the community and what they've done with all of those questions is to put forward some wonderful content that engages people right across the board spectrum. I mean, we've got such representation on this show, haven't we? I mean, we've had three indigenous writers. We've had, I think, at least two LGBTQ writers. Um, it's not easy, you know, we've had uh, people of color writers. We've had, you know, it's, uh, it's, something, it's something really laudable about the diversity of this region, that these writers can live and flourish and work here. I'm also really glad that we um, have had a couple of working class writers on as well. Um, I, uh, because I work in the academy as well, and, and, and the assumption is, of course, um, that I was born to that kind of privilege, and I certainly was not. I was raised working class myself, and I'm, I'm very interested in, in having that kind of diversity and that kind of representation on the show. And also, I think it's important uh, to think about diversity in terms of where people are in their careers. So. We've had Governor uh, General's award winners on this show, and we've had people who have published their first book, right, and are just Im uh, embarking on these uh, particular kinds of, um, of questions. And that's important too, right? It's important to have local support for people who are just beginning, and of course, uh, local pride <laughs> for people who are out there uh, doing it and getting the awards and, and having bestsellers. Yeah, and this, this whole idea of geopolitical uh, sense of place, when you read, when you listen to Laurie Graham talking about walking the Grand River, and you listen to Fitzam uh, talking about what it's like to not have an identity in the place where he lives and how he struggles with that on a daily basis. Janet Rogers and doubling down on the joy moving back to Six Nations after yeah. 30 years away. And, and Yasmin and Namat Ali, who talked about her home as a place that was un, unhospitable to her desires and her passions. And she wrote a, an, an elegy about having to leave. And I believe that was the first thing she's written. Oh, am I wrong? Uh, it's not the first thing she's written, but I, I think she's, um, she has worked more as a visual artist, and so she's starting to move into uh, writing poetry, and her facility with it is, is extremely good. So I feel we discovered a real talent. That's the other thing. We've been doing a lot of talent um, identification and development. And I think that the radio show is a wonderful platform for them to showcase what they can do. 
And also uh, projects like uh, Textile Magazine and their, uh, their emphasis on hyper-local literature and on mentoring artists, which is, of course, how we, we got Yasmin on the show uh, at all, because Fitzum and, and Andy, who uh, run uh, Textile, uh, put us in touch with her. So um, it really is about um, putting together a kind of community network of uh, to know who is creating and where, because sometimes we don't always know, right? That's right. And we also have um, a sense of which we have now developed uh, an image of our identity as a region by what these writers are writing about. We're, we're pretty much identified with being tech, right? Um, there's a small heritage section. There are people who are historians, but present day living and life is really being um, applauded and, and actually even criticized, which is a good thing. By, by these local writers. So we're getting a sense of not only who the town city is, but who we are as Canadians living in Waterloo region. Well, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I really want to steal that logo back. That creativity is right here. I know it refers to, uh, to big tech, but I think it can refer to the artists that we have living here. So I'm all for reappropriating that. Just, just to mention again, that actually people beyond the region listen to us. That's true. We've got people in uh, all over Canada. We have them in the US, the UK. We have them in Ireland, Sweden, Japan, the uh, and the Arab countries. We know we've got a we've got a reach beyond the region. So I think that's also good for the region. I mean, in terms of um, promoting what we do here and what lives here and what we create here. So let's talk a little bit about our upcoming season. Mm -hmm. our season two, which we're already planning for. Uh, I know that we have the prose writer Mariam Pirbai coming up. Her short story collection, Outside People and Other Stories, has won several awards. And she's at work at a novel called Watershed, perfect for this show, uh, mm -hmm. which is about um, about being Muslim in the region and uh, Islamophobia. And uh, again, thinking about that sense of place what does it mean to be here? What does it mean to be here as a, a Muslim woman? So Mariam's coming up on our uh, second season. We also have Howden Ashani, a writer, Sarah General, who runs Spirit and Intent Publishing in Six Nations. And she's written something called, uh, a book called Pride and Resjidus. Yes, I said Resjidus because she has adapted it from uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice um, to have a love story set on uh, set on um, on Six Nations, I'm looking forward to to talking also again to our friends from Textile, and to delve further into their mentoring process for young writers in the region. So, Tennis, we've uh, we've managed to mine all of the uh, wonderful writers, fifteen of them so far. How many more do you think there are? I think there are many more, many more. I, you know, uh, there are lots of people that I, I want to have uh, on the show for sure. And I, I think I can't give a list because these people haven't <laughs> agreed to be on the show yet. But I think the more I uh, look for writers, the more they appear uh, in the region. So I don't think we'll be running out of people anytime soon. I, I think it's gonna be very easy to fill that second season and the third. And as a team, we've been uh, just having uh, brainstorming about what the next season would look or sound like. And uh, we've got some ideas about different segments we'd like to do. 
And uh, these would include something of a shorter interview, a, a book review, and themed panels on particular themes. And we think that that's more suitable to a podcast format as well, because people tend to use like they're like a menu. They just pick what they want to hear. I know I do. That'll be fun. And um, I know people are talking about a menu and I, I know I, I keep just thinking about it like a smorgasbord, which is sort of <laughs> also a, a food metaphor, right? Where uh, a little something for everyone. More on uh, what books you can read, uh, certainly hearing from the writers themselves and also having either a book panelists where everyone's read the same book or uh, a writer's panel where people talk about, say, writing YA fiction or um, being uh, late blooming writers or maybe a poets panel. We'll see what the season brings. Well, that's wonderful. I've certainly enjoyed working with you, uh, Tennis. I give you full marks for just a wonderful way you have of interviewing people. Oh, um, thank you. It's great. Well, and uh, we should also give a shout out to our technical producer, Brendan Highmore, who uh, makes us sound good on Zoom and everywhere else. And um, we could not do the show without him. So thanks, Brendan. So I really wanted to say a great big thank you to the Regional Waterloo Arts Fund for funding Watershed Riders. Um, we couldn't have done it without you. We hope we've made you proud. Thank you very much. And of course, we also want to thank uh, Martin de Groot, host of Promenade, for being our host this season and uh, giving us the, the boost that uh, Watershed Riders need. Uh, thanks very much, Martin. Watershed Riders is produced by Francis Roberts Riley with technical production by Brendan Highmore. Our first season is hosted by CKWR 98.5 in Waterloo Region with support from Region of Waterloo Arts Fund and in partnership with Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Our theme music is Water by Alicia Brilla from her album, Rooted. What are we gonna